Hi, I'm Liz Solar. Who hasn't spent the last couple of years binge-watching an old TV series, discovering something new, or anxiously awaiting the next big blockbuster film? That show or movie started with an idea, which morphed into a script. We're talking to someone who generates and pitches those ideas that become the compelling stories we're drawn to on Embark. Colin Lieberg is a screenwriter, creative executive, and world traveler. He has spent many years living abroad and feeling out of place, so he writes about outsiders struggling to fit in. He has a background in academia, management, marketing, and retail. I think all writers do, that all inform <laughs> his characters and stories. It's just true. Colin is the creative executive of Cobalt Night. It's a genre production company focused on telling feature series and comic book stories about the human condition with touches of social commentary. Oh my, let's get to that. For the past two years, he has run a monthly hashtag virtual happy hour, hashtag VHH Zoom Mixer to connect with friends and make new connections. And here he is to talk about it. Let's connect to Colin Lieberg. Thanks for meeting up today. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for having me. Well, recently, quite a few writers have shown up, but you're my first screenwriter in a long time. How's that going? Uh, it is going going well. Always, I'm always working on something. I write for myself, obviously, but also there's lots of uh, deadlines in the screenwriting world of a contest or um, a fellowship application, or if you're lucky enough to be working with people paying you to to do screenwriting, you've also got deadlines for, oh, the new episode needs to be out. So there's always some sort of deadline to be writing for, which is, in some respects, a writer's best friend. Absolutely. In fact, I knew a journalist and I said, you know, what is your inspiration? And they said, deadlines. So we <laughs> deadline is really inspiring us. <laughs> that's, that's the artistic way to look at it, I guess. So many writers I know have a bit of that outsider persona about them. And you mentioned that travel caused you to feel out of place. Can you talk about that experience? I, I can. And it actually starts even before my world traveling experience. Um I work for a genre production company. I oftentimes write genre stories, which is science fiction, fantasy, or horror, what usually gets turned as genre. So I was I grew up reading science fiction and fantasy stories and, and playing Dungeons and Dragons and doing all these quote unquote nerdy things before these things became cool. So even when I was growing up, I felt kind of out of place. My mom always said I danced to the beat of my own drummer sort of thing. That was uh, made more um, explicit and, and I felt even more out of place when I lived abroad. So in college, I studied abroad in the Netherlands and then I went to grad school in England for a couple of years. And in those two places, I may look similar to the people who live there, but I either had a very strange accent or didn't speak the language, sometimes both. And so it just kind of, it, it made me feel like I didn't belong. I remember when I first landed in the Netherlands, I, I didn't speak the language. I probably hadn't slept in about 12 hours due to a very long flight and um, didn't know anyone. And so I landed and I look up at the uh, at the welcome international, welcome to wherever you're going sign. And it was all in Dutch. And I'm like, okay, I am not in California anymore. I don't know what I'm doing. And, and like, had almost a near mental breakdown of like, I don't belong here. Thankfully, basically everyone in the Netherlands speaks uh, English. So I didn't feel 
lost for too long, but it just, it reinforced that belief of like, I am different. I am strange. Where do I go from here? I grew up in California and we went to Mexico once for a family vacation. And I also did some sort of like, I think it was called people to people as like a big um, group travel when I was in high school sometime. So we traveled to the middle of Europe as part of a, a large group, um, I guess, which was a cultural learning experience. But most of the time I was on my own. Those are the conditions to be a writer because it's such a solitary undertaking. And, and we're with those thoughts. All these thoughts are percolating. And, and when we kind of feel we don't belong someplace, we can you know, make our own imaginary worlds to live in for a while and have our own imaginary friends to play with. Indeed. And um, sometimes those are the best friends we have. I mean, if you spend years watching a television show or rewatching or uh, hopefully you know, writing a show or reading a book or whatever, you know, you, you feel like you know these people really well and they are some of your best friends. You've been writing for a long time. Someone once told me to never use the word aspiring when you're starting to write or act or maybe it's any kind of pursuit or process of anything that we feel is worth doing. But generally, we don't really want to use those labels until we feel like we had our first public success or there's somebody gives us a paycheck, which makes us feel like a professional or validates our talent. When has that moment come for you where you went from aspiring or thinking like, oh, this is something that I'd like to do or I aspire to do to, oh, I really am in this world now? Oh, that's an excellent question. And it does come up a lot in the screenwriting circles I engage with. The real difference mentally for me was when I actually sat down and started writing a script, as opposed to I'm thinking about a script or I'm a writer, but I don't actually write, which was how I spent a lot of, I thought I was a novelist for a long time, but I never actually sat down and wrote a story or a novel. Which is like, oh, I'm thinking of characters, I'm thinking of plot, but I never wrote. Or I always had the dream of being a writer, but I never had the time to be a writer. So it's when I actually sat down at my computer and started typing words on the page using the software that I became from an aspiring screenwriter to a screenwriter. The way to become one is to actually sit down and attempt to do it. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you are a creative director at Cobalt Night? Creative executive. So you're a creative executive. Tell me what that role is. Tell me what you do with that. So it is a varied role of, I am basically in charge of finding projects that we can take out as a production company to various buyers that could be par helping to partner with, with other production companies, could be going to a streamer or a network saying, we have this project, we want you to help us make it, and, and everything involved in that. So it's talking to writers, it's talking to actors and directors and managers and agents and other producers trying to see what projects we have and what need they have and how we can help them feel the need that they have. Your work necessarily involves pitching people and presentation, yes? Uh, a lot of that does, yes. Regardless of our profession, you know, you could be a creative pitching a film or a book or 
a movie, television series. But regardless of our profession, I think we always have to pitch ourselves, you know, what we do, what services or products we provide, aka selling or networking. What are some, if you have a few little tricks and tips, what are some ways that you can effectively pitch someone to get a yes? Uh, That is also an excellent question. And um, I think it depends on the person and the project, because especially with screenwriting, I think with anything creative, not everyone is going to like every product. I'm thinking of just, I'm a big fan of art and and looking at um, artists and some people love Rembrandt and some people love Van Gogh and some people love Kandinsky, but not everyone loves everything. So I think the first kind of piece of device is, first of all, it's okay to hear no. That just means it wasn't right yet. No doesn't mean the project is bad. It just means it wasn't right for the person. And then from there, hopefully you can get some feedback about, you know, what they didn't like about it. Not every piece of feedback is going to be valuable. Sometimes it's just someone didn't like something. Like if they're running into a problem, that could be a deeper issue, which helps solve character issue, a plot issue, a story beat in general, something that maybe they're running up against, which will help make your project even stronger. Hopefully, if you do hear now, you get some feedback. And otherwise, um, if you're pitching, try not to make it a sale. It's it's a conversation you're having with someone. Um, I mean, you're you're talking about it. Hopefully, you're talking about it with passion and enthusiasm, and your artistic vision is coming through. You want them to to feel engaged as well. If possible, if you're in person, if you can, um, you know, uh, lean forward or. Um, I talk with my hands a lot. So, you know, if I'm talking with my hands, hopefully they're responding with their hands. Obviously, eye contact is very important. Make it a conversation. It's hopefully it's a fun world or maybe it's a very intense, dark world or whatever, something in between. But there's something you're passionate about in the project. Make the other person passionate about it, too. You know, you mentioned sometimes it's just not the time or Mm -hmm. or you could be overly saturated with like programs, with like films. Everybody, ideas come in spurts and often large swaths of people have the same idea in the same time period. And whoever gets there first gets to own it. I think at one point there were a couple of Truman Capote movies out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the person who got it out first had the most success. I can't say which was the better film. But one had the edge of being there first. And sometimes that's a very helpful thing. You know, I've heard people pitching stories and it will be the most outlandish thing. And an agent will say, oh, my God, you know, we have 90 of those, you know, so you just don't know how things are going to be received or or how much fatigue has happened around a particular subject. And I know that you like to look through the lens of genre film and TV series through a social commentary, and creators often reflect and maybe predict a social situation. Like I'm thinking of HBO's Veep or Mm -hmm. NBC's Parks and Recreation. They lampooned politicians on both local and national levels. And at a certain point, the satire was surpassed by the real, how do I say, buffoonery we often see played out in current events. And, uh, you know, Jordan Peele found the horror in casual racism in his film Get Out. Mm-hmm. What types of stories right now are of the moment that are being played out post-pandemic? Do you have a sense of that? I feel like there's a, um, an aspect for almost anything that deals with some aspect of society. Because Jordan Peele, as you brought up, you know, dealt with 
with casual racism, but that's not the only lens to look through. There could be many other uh, movies or stories about casual racism in, in various other lenses. It could be, you know, one of, one of the things I like to talk about is, you know, it could be a show about robots and it's about casual racism. Um, so just because Jordan Peele did it doesn't mean it's the only way to do it. So in some aspect, I think you could tell the the same, even if it's just one social issue from many different perspectives. But that being said, uh, climate change seems to be a, a, a really prominent one nowadays um, and, and various ways to tackle it, whether it's a, oh, what can we do to prevent climate change? And, and maybe we invent some technology or maybe it's a post-apocalyptic. Well, climate change happened. Here's how we deal with it now. That seems to be the, the prevalent one I am seeing a lot recently. Hmm. For a while, you know, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were some very heartfelt, earnest commercials or, you know, public service announcements. And so much of what I see uh, played out in advertising now is a little bit more humorous. Do you see or sense the same thing happening with television series or films where there's, you know, humor, whether it's dark or slapstick, light are you seeing some more, you know, funnies coming in? Television and film are, I, I think you mentioned this earlier, they're cyclical. And everyone wants to chase a trend until, you know, that trend is saturated and then you find something else. Um, one of my favorite shows of, of the last decade is is Ted Lasso. One, it's a great show, just well-written and funny and, and very heartfelt. But I think it's it happened to come along at the right time for society of we were in the very heavy throes of a global pandemic that we knew very little about, especially in America. There was a lot of political turmoil at the same time when it, when it first came out. Uh, so for the next you know, six to nine months after Ted Lasso came out, it was all I'm hearing from people is, oh, we got to find the next Ted Lasso. We got to find the next Ted Lasso. We need something happy. We need something fun. And then Squid Game came out which was almost the exact opposite. It's dark, it's gritty, there's death. There's not a lot of humor in it. And then all of a sudden, oh, we need to find the next Squid Game. And, oh, this is happy. We're not doing happy anymore. There's there's so many trends that we're trying to chase until you find the next thing that starts the new trend. Exactly. Do you find in your own storytelling, as well as the stories that you're seeing, that people are more attracted to the protagonist, the, the character, or the story, because I think Ted Lasso is very special because he's relentlessly optimistic. And yet you see the other side of his life where he is, I don't want to say sad clown because he's, you know, I, I don't think of him in that way. I really feel like he's fully formed, but uses, mm -hmm. you know, he, his armor is not being cruel or unkind or using sarcasm. His is actually like spreading goodwill. Right. I can talk Ted Lasso all day. Well, then we're going to have to have a masterclass because I, I think it's a fabulous show. Are we more taken with a character or voice, which is where I start with so many projects, or is it the story itself that compels us? I think to pique someone's interest, like if you're watching a, a commercial or a preview of a movie or TV show, it's it's the story of like, you've got this kind of cool, high concept world or something happens. But I think that is just the start of it. Once you've you know piqued their interest, then it's the character that you actually start to care about or potentially not care about 
in terms of like an anti-hero. But even then, you still kind of care about them, and especially, you know, to, at the turn of the 21st century, up until recently, there was a, a very large trend of anti-heroes. So you had the Sopranos, which had a big anti-hero. You had uh, Mad Men and Breaking Bad, which was not necessarily good people, but just compelling in like, they're bad, but I want to see what they're doing next. So I think, especially for television, it's it's character drives the story because you're investing, you know, nowadays it's eight to 10 to 13 hours a season, or however many seasons, but that's, you know, going to be 30, 40, 1500 hours of, of something. If you, if you don't care about the characters, you're not going to invest that much time. No, I, I totally agree. I have to like that person even. And you mentioned three incredible shows with three antiheroes that were highly watchable. And even at their worst, there was still an element of humanity mm-hmm. that kept me involved because we can all be a little bad. We can all be a little good. And how that gets divided out you know, along the continuum is in itself fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Getting to characters, you're working on a couple of things yourself. Can you reveal anything about any of your characters? Oh, yes, yes. Obviously, I have multiple projects going on at multiple times because that's how uh, most writers tend to work is we'll write something and then set it aside for a little bit while you work on something else. So one of my favorite projects, uh, I'm a historian, which is what I went to school for. And just fascinated by not only history in the broad sense, but also individual stories that you don't hear a lot about. Either people like that did things that maybe got us a, a tiny mention or um, people you just never heard about, but were played an important part. I read history books for fun because, I, like I said earlier, I'm a big nerd. So I was reading a history book uh, about uh, World War II. There were two female resistance members um, that got casually mentioned of like, oh, this person ran an escape line, which was uh, um, kind of like an underground railroad sort of thing to help allied soldiers escape from allied or from uh, Nazi occupied territories and get back to their, their countries of origin to potentially go back to the front lines and fight again. And then there was also a woman who um, translated intelligence and passed it along to the allies. So I found just like these two women got casual notifications, mentions in this story of broader um, spying in Nazi-occupied Europe and just went down a rabbit hole. And so I started researching everything I could about especially World War II intelligence, but spying in general and and these women in particular um, and wrote a a pilot. uh, So for those who don't know, a pilot is the basically first episode of a television series in the long ago days of upfronts and and how shows got made is uh, people would write a pilot. Those would get potentially sold to a network. They'd buy 30 of them at a time and make the pilot. And then they do viewings. It's like, well, of these 30, you know, we're going to pick up these six episodes or six shows to series. Pilots are still basically how you write the start of a show. Um, so I wrote a pilot called Occupied Intelligence, about these two women. Obviously, took a lot of creative liberties in in terms of storytelling, the situations, the exact situations they're involved in. But um, it's mostly about these two women who uh, help Allied soldiers and who translate documents 
uh, while pretending to be just normal civilians in occupied France in the 1940s. That has received a lot of accolades, I was reading. Yeah. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. That, like I said, that's one of my favorite projects, in part because I'm a historian and love telling that story. So that has received a lot of accolades. There are a couple other pilots. I My goal is to be a TV writer, hopefully at some point run my own show. If that happens, it will probably be many years down the line because there's still a lot to learn for in terms of how to make a show. But I've got a couple other uh, shows right now that I'm working on, a pilot. I'm finishing up the latest draft of a, a pilot I'm calling for the moment golden murder club. But um, I don't love the title, but it, it's, it works well for the moment. Well, that's why they call it a working title, right? Oh, exactly. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but is this oh, the one oh. that we discussed before that are you at liberty to talk about the plot? This one I can talk about. Yes. This is my creation. Um, I have another project I'm working for, for work that I can't really talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is about a woman who uh, her daughter was murdered uh, a long time ago and the person executed for that murder, she realizes was probably innocent of that particular crime. So she takes it upon herself and, and ropes in a friend of hers to uh, investigate uh, the murder and starts murdering people along the way. She takes it on her own hands and it's about a retired woman she's you know, never quite recovered from the trauma of her only daughter dying violently. She's now retired. Um, she's also a drug dealer on the side because, you know, retirees got to make money somehow. Um, also, she self-medicates. Uh, but, yeah, so she takes it upon herself to um, get revenge on the people who murdered her daughter. And you had an interesting log line for that. Are are, are you able to divulge that? Oh, totally. Yes. Uh, let me uh, let me pull that one up because going back to the pitching, you should probably have your log lines um, memorized. Uh, <laughs> I unfortunately don't always have them memorized. I feel um, that pain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the 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 log line for this is: after realizing the man executed for her daughter's murder was wrongfully convicted. A drug dealer retiree takes law into her own hands to get revenge on the real killer. So it's kind of like a Grace and Frankie meets Dexter. It's got kind of that that playful, double-fisted, two women taking charge of their life, but also the darkness of Dexter, because that was one of my favorite shows. Yeah, that was pretty dark. I remember seeing an edited version of it once, and it scared me. I'm I'm just not really good with gore, apparently. So, um, yeah, Dexter, but you know, great <laughs> show, great narrative, and you know, really felt it was smart that they gave him the dad, you know, the dad character um, who understood mm-hmm, who the mm-hmm. guy was and was able to point this child, this young man, in a direction that uh, you know he used his evil powers for good. I guess exactly. Yeah. Yeah, made the best of a bad situation. So when you say something like it's Grace and Frankie meets Dexter, is that part of the log line? Is that something else? That little that little gem that you you let people know to to pitch? Uh, that is something different from the log line. Ideally, comps is what we call them. So they could be something in, in tonally that is similar to it, or it's just, they're there to um, help who's ever hearing your little pitch kind of imagine the world of like, so, you know, like I said, Grace and Frankie is kind of a lighthearted, fun show about two women 
retirees finding themselves, and Dexter is a darker show about murder. So, like, it combines the best of these two shows. But it would be a very different uh, comp if I said something along the lines of X-Files meets Breaking Bad. You know, it, mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you know, just hearing those two things that it's not going to be a show about retirees um, murdering people. So the comp is similar to like a Reese's peanut butter cup. You know, you get two great tastes in, exactly, in, one, yes. in one story. There's so many novels being translated to screen right now. And television seems to be the place novels want to go. There's just mm-hmm. a lot to put into a film and you can get a lot of mileage if you make it into a series. Are there any books out there right now that you're looking at and saying, oh, I would love a chance to turn that into a series. Oh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this. So I, that some of the people I talk to in the screenwriting world basically say, keep that secret so that when the rights do come up, you can pounce on it. But I've made it known for a long time. There was a, a series of books by Roger Zelazny from the late 70s, early 80s called The Chronicles of Amber. And apparently there have been multiple attempts to it to turn it into um, a TV show. That is a series I would love to write. Deals with like multiple realities and magic and someone trying to figure out a murder. So it kind of, it was one of my favorite books that I read growing up. Uh, So that's, that's what I would love to write on. But there, I mean, there's so much out there to, to potentially work on it. I would be honored or thrilled to work on almost anything that gets made. Okay, well, so putting out the word now, Colin is available <laughs> to write your TV pilot <laughs> or to run your show. Tell me about your, it's uh, the group that you have on Zoom every month. And so is, that a I, writer's, I, is that a writer's group? Not officially a writer's group. Uh, so when I talk about a writer's group, those are usually people who meet, whether that's weekly or every couple of weeks to, to discuss people's works and give feedback and, and you know hopefully become better writers. This, uh, the virtual happy hour is what I call it. So VHH for short. I started that nearly two years ago because, you know, part of, as you mentioned earlier, being a writer is kind of lonely. You're sitting at your computer all day, but, you know, you need other people to bounce story ideas off of, or just you have friends in the industry, people who know what you're going through. Oftentimes before the pandemic, people would, you know, They'd go out for breakfast, they'd go out for coffees or lunches, or you'd have, you know, poker nights, or you'd all be at uh, drinks uh, with groups of friends or whatnot. Um, So when the pandemic hit and we were all kind of locked in our houses for months on end, I thought it'd be kind of cool to be like, hey, I miss seeing my friends. Let's get together on Zoom. Uh, For about, like I said, the last two years, I put together a, a monthly happy hour and it's mostly writers who attend, but not strictly writers. Basically, anyone who is wants to be involved in the movie or television business is invited. Or, you know, maybe you just want to meet people who are interested in that space. I usually do it for you know, two, two and a half hours once a month. Uh, and the, the day and the time changes because there are people all around the world who attend. I have uh, some friends in, in Japan and New Zealand, and somebody from India was there. I just had one uh, this past weekend, and somebody from India was there, and the people in Germany and United Kingdom and Ireland, people all across the U.S. and Canada. I mean, people from, literally from all over the world. What's convenient for me, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time, isn't necessarily going to be a very good time for someone in India, for example. 
hopefully just get more people from various places who can attend. Hopefully you have a chance to connect with people in a, in a smaller environment and you can talk about your projects or you know, what you're looking for or um, you know, just reconnect with friends. If someone were writing your story up to now, they'd say something like the ultimate outsider creates a space for people to belong. I like that. Thank you. You're welcome. I think that's great, taking that outsider status and now creating a, a, a space where people can get together and connect because that's that's what we're really seeking. Even when we're writing in solitary, I just want to connect with another human being. Exactly. Yes. Being the outsider, I know what it's like to feel disconnected. So uh, I appreciate being connected with people in any way possible. It's a lovely and generous thing to do. If people wanted to take part in your virtual happy hour or mm -hmm. hashtag VHH, how do they do that? Uh, they can email me at colin.lieberg at gmail.com or I'm at Colin Lieberg on Twitter and just DM me um, their email address. I'll get them added to the list. Excellent. And I do want to add that it's Colin with two L's. That is correct. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Always spell the name correctly. It It, it helps. Colin, yeah. I wish you the best of luck. I can't wait to see what happens in the next year with everything that you're working on. And and if I ever write a show, I want you to run it for me. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I don't think I have the experience yet to do that. I mean, there is so much involved in running a show that I know almost nothing about at the moment, uh, from casting decisions to um, budgeting aspects to hiring directors. Hopefully someday I'll learn. But at the moment, I... Uh, don't have those skills and experiences. Well, we will travel that learning curve together. Thank you. Great having you, and, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You can find more information about Colin Lehman in the liner notes. If you like what you hear on Embark, share this episode, tell a friend, and please subscribe. You can also get in touch at liz at embarkthepodcast.com. You have a very busy week with many choices of how to spend your time, and the fact that you're here, well, I'm just eternally grateful. Have a great week, and in the meantime, thanks for listening.